Welcome back to season one, episode four of Dialogue Dilemmas. I'm your host, Megan. Today I have a guest with me, Paige. So Paige and I actually met uh, through a nonviolent communication classes that were happening in the Chico community. So she's definitely somebody that we have a long history of both being interested in dialogue together and also political dialogue. We've spent a lot of time talking about various political issues and trying to understand things from different points of view together. And is there anything you would like to add to that? No, I really like that introduction. Um, Yeah, I remember one of the things that we did one time, it was your idea was um, having like the NBC list of like feelings and needs and going to city hall and handing those out before like the city council meetings and encouraging people to use that kind of language like during the public comment um, to comment in a way that kind of connects with the greatest amount of people on issues that they care about. So yeah, that's it's definitely a longstanding interest of mine and yeah, currently I work in a community mental health setting and am going to grad school um, to learn how to be a therapist. Yeah, I was going to mention that too, that you have boots on the ground related to work relevant to social issues, providing services to people in the, I don't know what term your agency uses, but the behavioral or mental health field. Yeah. Um, I guess we use behavioral health, um, although a lot of times I call it mental health when I'm talking to yeah. uh, people because I think it that's more like what people think of, you know, my job falls into that category. And sometimes people are like, behavioral health, what's that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, same for me because I also worked with a behavioral health agency and we usually talked about mental health. It's kind of like a holdover term, I feel like, from another era. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting because the agency actually used to be called mental health and it was like a mental health agency and a um, drug and alcohol treatment agency. And then they combined and when they combined, they called it behavioral health. And um, I mean, I think it's actually kind of appropriate because um, like we are we serve like Medi-Cal, the Medi-Cal population and gonna be honest here like nobody cares how bad people feel or like how bad their mental health is if they can function well Mm -hmm. like if their behavior is appropriate um they're probably not gonna screen in for services even if they're like pretty mentally unwell and of course like your mental state impacts your behavior and your ability to function but um no that's yeah I, I do Yeah, because I've actually been, um, I remember one time when I was really struggling and I went to, you know, one of the places that does mental health screenings and their reaction to me did not feel proportionate to how much I felt like I was struggling. And I think it had a lot to do with that. I was not, you know, about to hurt myself or someone else basically. And so they were doing triage, which then when I worked in a similar context was able to I guess, understand that triage a little bit more, but it's, uh, 
Right. I understand it. I get where it's coming from. It doesn't always like, um, it's not always how I would choose to interact with people. And sometimes we end up turning people away who I'm like, oh, that does not feel good to me at all. But um, that's just, I guess, how that model um, works. Yeah. And it's, it's not always very like preventative, although there are, are programs I know in various communities that are trying to focus on prevention um, with greater or lesser funding, depending on the area and the program. In terms of, by, by prevention, I suppose I mean like helping people before they get to a point where others would consider their behavior a problem. But anyway, um, yeah, we're kind of, going down the rabbit hole of this topic but I wanted to also thank you for bringing up that that activity at city council of like handing out uh lists of needs within the NVC framework because that was like very much a precursor to what I'm doing now I feel like like that at that time period I was like I knew I wanted to do something with local politics and promoting dialogue and understanding and I was like trying to do something but I was still just figuring it out basically and I'm still figuring it out right now this is my next attempt in many series of attempts to offer some sort of intervention in my community around political dialogue with that being said is there anything else you would like to say about like how you relate to this idea of dialogue around political conflict and Um, dialogue dilemmas the dilemmas that can come up when we try to dialogue before we get into our main topic yeah I mean I think it's been on a lot of people's minds um lately with how the country's political climate has been in the past uh, maybe five to six years and it's a it's been a growing problem um so it isn't just in the last five to six years but I think there's been more people talking about like the polarization and how difficult it is to have conversations about politics um, because it seems like there are just separate realities um, and people have a hard time agreeing on even like what, what the facts of a situation are much less um, addressing like how things should change or how we can move forward Um, even just the basics seem to be harder to grasp at the moment. And that worries me. And it can be scary to talk to someone about politics if they have a different view. Like you can feel the the mood in the room change Mm -hmm. sometimes when somebody bring something up and everybody gets tense and it's like, Oh, is there going to be a disagreement? And not that like disagreement is the worst thing in the world, but the way that, you know, disagreements have been happening. You hear stories about, you know, people's families breaking apart and stuff, Mm -hmm. um, you know, over electoral federal politics, um, which is, can seem pretty far removed from our day-to-day life. I mean, obviously it has an impact on it, but the, like the tension that people feel around it seems counterproductive. Yeah. The tension that you mentioned seems like that can often be related to fear, which I 
talked about in the last episode. And then today I wanted to talk about the next piece in this article that I'm sort of reporting on about fear and hope and their relationship with political dialogue and well with conflict and then applying that to dialogue. But before we talk about the research around that, that they're drawing on um, again, if you didn't listen to the last episode, the researchers I'm talking about are Yarimovich and Bartal, which that will be cited in the episode notes. But before we get into talking about like the research they report on related to hope and conflict, I was just wanting to have a discussion about our personal relationship with this concept of hope. Uh, do you have any thoughts off the top of your head that you want to share? Thoughts about hope. Yeah, hope and political dialogue or hope in general. Um. <laughs> well, let me ask this. Uh, hope to- Oh, go ahead. I is do better hope, with a prompt. <laughs> yeah. Is hope a good thing or a bad thing or sometimes a good thing and sometimes a bad thing or a neutral thing? Any thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it really depends on how hope is being used. I think in general, people have this idea that hope is a good thing. You know, like people name, you know, little children hope sometimes. Um, sometimes I think hope can be... Um, like if people are just crossing their fingers and hoping Mm -hmm. instead of, um, engaging in action, like if, if the hope is just kind of coming from a place of wishful thinking, um, and it's just, you know, it's like, oh, well, I hope it gets better. And then you don't Mm -hmm. take any action. I think that could be detrimental, but I think in order to take action you have to have hope that it will do something like Mm -hmm. if you don't have the hope that your actions will matter you're not going to to even try yeah in in the paper is this where I read that like people who are like more optimistic actually use less wishful thinking and yeah it is like they have more problem solving ability and I think if you don't have any hope um, you know, it's just kind of, you've given up. Why try? Why bother? Yeah. And it, it makes sense, I guess, to me that hope in the way we're talking about it and problem solving ability could go together because if you have the ability to think of a solution to a problem, then you'll feel more hopeful. But if you find yourself getting stuck and not being able to think of a solution, then you won't feel as hopeful. And maybe it could go the other way too. Like if you just naturally feel more hopeful, then you're more determined to find a solution. Although I don't think that's what these authors are necessarily saying the research points to. But I was going to bring up the same kind of dichotomy of, I remember reading about like something in a Thich Nhat Hanh book with different meditations. And one was about hope and how it can be unhealthy if it's like this very passive thing of like oh I hope that works itself out like I hope those politicians like find a solution but I'm not going to involve myself in it like passive hope and then there's a more active hope and I, I remember reading this quote from author Rebecca Solnit hope is an axe you break down doors with and I'm imagining like being in a house 
with a fire and or trying to get into a house with a fire to rescue someone and the door won't open. And so you're like breaking it, trying to break it down with an ax. And in that moment, it's like, you don't even care how small the chance is that you might get through the door. You're going to try anyway. Right. You have so much hope for a good outcome in that situation. Yeah. And I guess fear at the same time, though, in that situation, because it's such a desperate situation. Do you have any, like, personal experiences you would like to share where you either found yourself not feeling hopeful or or where maybe you weren't at first and then um, did find some hope about a positive outcome? Hmm. I'll add, especially uh, it, it relates to like local politics. No, I'm rush. having a hard one, a hard time. Like Peter just came in here and said Pete Buttigieg to me, um, <laughs> and it, it is politics, but it's not local. I know last um, year about this time there was like all the Democratic primaries going on, and I was like you know, he kept being like, Oh, do you want to watch one of the debates? I'm like, I'm not interested. Like, I'm sick of this. I don't care. Like I didn't have mm-hmm. a lot of um, time or patience for it at that moment in time. And then um, Pete Buttigieg won the Iowa primary. And um, I had been like kind of interested in him and I like tuned in to hear his speech and um, like, it sounds super corny, but it actually like made me tear up. Um, because he's a gay man and he won, um, the state of Iowa, which is kind of like, you know, heartland, like it went for Trump this time. If you looked at the map of, you know, who voted in Iowa for who, it was actually the rural areas who voted for Pete rather than like, um, the cities who tended to vote for Sanders or Warren. And um, he just gave this really moving speech, like, you know, for all those kids out there who think that, you know, you can't do it. it, This shows that, you know, um, you can believe in America and like the promise Mm -hmm. of America. And that's something I struggle with a lot because, um, you know, if you pay attention to what our country does, a lot of it, it's like pretty shady. And like it, it was like just you know, a political speech, but like, I found it very moving and hopeful. Um, and like, as soon as that happened, I was like, okay, I'm interested again, <laughs> like in what's going on. Yeah. And, you know, I went for all the debates after that. And even though I knew like, he's super young, doesn't have a ton of experience. He doesn't really like have a chance. Like I, I just felt hopeful that somebody who it's not just like that he's a gay man, but he's very, um, and he, he speaks very well. He's super articulate and he's also like really open. He's like pretty far to the left, but he all always talks like he's a moderate and he's always was like on the campaign trail talking about yeah. future former Republicans and how he wanted to like, he's like, I know there's people out there who are disillusioned with the Republican party. Like, we should speak to them and bring them into our party and, you know, make a case for why they should vote to us, vote for us. And he was so like so many, I hear so many politicians speak and it's so alienating. And I just felt a lot of hope talking to him because I felt like this is somebody who can like maybe get through to people who, 
you know, establishment Democrats or like the party line Democrats haven't really been able to before. Mm. And he was just really seemed to be interested. Like, and it's not that he was like wishy-washy on his own values. He goes on Fox news and he talks to me, he like holds his line, but he, he doesn't condescend to people. He doesn't like talk down. He's not like dismissive of people or contemptuous of people at all. And I felt really hopeful when that happened and just like seeing him rise to power. Now he's in the cabinet and that's like a hopeful feeling. Cause I'm like, Oh, he's gonna have a, a political career. Yeah. I think he has like more of a chance to, to break through the partisan divide than a lot of other politicians do. There's a lot there. Like when you were first sharing that, I thought, that you were going to say that you were hopeful, but then you were disappointed when he didn't like make it. But it sounded like it was really much, much more than about him ever winning. It was just like what he symbolized and embodied was what inspired hope for you. Like that there are good things about this country, or I will say things that like resonate with your values and that there, there is potential and, and then what you said about how he's pretty far left, but at the same time is like very open and like talks to people in different ways. I was actually having another conversation with uh, a potential interviewee guest who I haven't haven't published that interview yet. It's in the archives of material that may end up in a future episode where we were talking about how your policy positions and your willingness to dialogue are like two different axes. And sometimes these things get conflated, but you can, yeah, you can be on any, have any policy positions and be more or less willing to dialogue. Like even a centrist, because I was kind of conflating those things. And maybe there's a general tendency for centrists to be more open to dialogue, but you can also be like a dogmatic centrist who's just like, I don't like extremists, screw the extremists <laughs> and, and not be open to dialogue, even though your policy positions are more moderate. So I think that's really important and something like I want to share that idea with people, because I think sometimes there's this idea that if you're talking to people that disagree with you, that you're like compromising your values. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. Yeah. Um, and it's true, like people can be dogmatic centrist. Like I was reading something about the economist and it was like a letter that they were publishing, like from the editors. And I think they even used the phrase like extreme centrism. Yeah. Um, to describe like their worldview. And yeah, I mean, if you're committed to that, if you're co- like super committed to like, only seeing the world from that one point of view, it does kind of shut down dialogue that you might have with others. Yeah. I think that's a risk too in doing like dialogue work or like um, de-escalation of tensions work. Or some people say depolarization, although I hesitate to use that word because it does kind of imply that people can't have extreme views on the political spectrum and still communicate with one another that sometimes there's this attitude that emerges of like, I perceive it, this is a judgment, (laughs) like self-righteous centrism of like, oh yeah, like all these people with their far left or far right views are just ruining everything, which for me is not like 
don't know. I'm just repeating myself. <laughs> um, I think we, I would like to understand the needs behind what everyone is doing and advocating for, not just like dismissing people with extreme views, extreme compared to the center, I guess. Um, what's on your mind now, Paige, with where we're at? Do you want to transition to talking about like anything that stood out to you from this article? Yeah, sure. I kind of mentioned this earlier, but a lot of the stuff I highlighted was um, how people with a high hope orientation spend more time thinking, perform better on cognitive tasks, have a greater problem solving ability, a rational problem solving style. Um, and have less self-blame and social withdrawal strategies in comparison to individuals with low hope orientation. And I thought that was really interesting. And I wanted to know more about what the instrument looked like that they used mm-hmm. to grade people on like high hope versus low hope. Like what, what did that scale look like? But it was interesting to me because like I mentioned earlier, like sometimes hope can have this very passive component, you know, Oh, just sit back and hope. Um, it's kind of like mm-hmm. synonymous with like doing nothing. Mm-hmm. And so seeing that multiple researchers have found um, this correlation between hope and problem solving abilities and like greater social engagement I thought was a pretty useful nugget yeah yeah it does it definitely contradicts that that idea of hope as passive and they these authors don't even really talk about that at all I don't think like if there is ever like a type of hope that is more passive you mentioned like how did being curious about how that was measured were you like maybe skeptical about it or had some questions about it I guess you could call it skepticism like I don't I wouldn't say that I was feeling like as strongly as the word like skeptical um implies like I kind of trust that they found something that is real but I guess I was just kind of interested in how they measure it because you know, like, how do they operationalize hope? Because, like, mm-hmm. one person's definition of hope might be a little bit different than someone else's. Mm-hmm. And so just thinking about, like, how they, um, you know, what words they use to measure it, did that lead to, like, a greater emphasis on that kind of, like, active component of hope? Yeah. Like, maybe a future study, or maybe there's other studies out there that I haven't encountered, might break it out by different types of hope. It, it kind of reminds me of one of the other studies I talked about on a former episode, measured belief in good and evil, and the association of that with willingness to commit violence. It's a little more specific than that, but in a general way. And the authors noted that it was not necessarily broken out by there's kind of at least two types of belief in good and evil. Like there's a belief that people are basically good or evil and people fall into like one or the other of those categories. And then there's a belief that we all have the potential for good or evil. And that's, those are actually like very different beliefs in a way. Um, I think yeah. they were sort of 
hypothesizing that it's the former, like this belief that there are basically good or evil people that is associated with willingness to commit violence. And that the belief that everyone has the potential for good or evil would be like more negatively associated with willingness to commit violence. Right. Because if you believe that people are good or evil, then violence against evil people is condoned or like condonable. But if even makes you sense. recognize that yeah. everyone has those impulse, you're like, oh, well, committing violence against someone is kind of evil. And I don't want to do that, recognizing that that impulse in me exists. Yeah. So I was just thinking of that compared to hope, like, it would be interesting to break it out, try to study like people who are hopeful and see if there's different schemas of people who are hopeful in a more active way or passive way and how that influences like other factors such as problem solving and uh, wishful thinking, social withdrawal, these factors that are mentioned. Right. And the way the authors describe it, like I believe that that hope is positively correlated with, you know, some of those, um, you know, the problem solving ability and um, like social engagement, because they do kind of provide their definition under the heading of the rationality of hope. And they say, you know, um, they kind of lay out what they mean. And I highlighted a a bunch of that stuff too, because I was like, wow, they're kind of like putting a lot into this idea of hope that I don't necessarily always read into it, but um, I don't necessarily disagree with them either because just thinking about like the people I know who seem to have a low hope orientation, um, like, you know, a lot of times I think of hope as like this internal feeling, but they're talking about like the cognitive basis behind hope that in order to have hope, you have to, be able to like think towards the future and all this stuff. And the more I thought about like the people in my life who have high or low hope, you know, the ones with low hope are the ones who um, give up easily and don't try so much after being like a little kind of, I don't know, surprised maybe at their definition. I was like, wow, there's a lot of stuff that they're tying to this. I don't know if I agree with that. After sitting with it for a little while and thinking about it, I'm like, oh, no, I, I, I can see what they're saying there. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask if you were, like, surprised and maybe, like, curious. Yeah, I was curious. I was like, how did they get to this definition of hope? Like, it doesn't yeah. seem to be necessarily, like, the lay person's definition. And I think that, I don't know, maybe hope isn't something that I have spent a lot of time thinking about and conceptualizing myself Mm -hmm. um and I'm also curious whether I have a higher or low hope orientation like if I were to take their measurement quiz on it like how how would I rank I mean that'd be really cool if you could and and I'll just mention that for the people listening we're talking about measurements that weren't necessarily developed by these authors this is more of a overview of other people's research again this this theme that i'm reporting on about fear and hope and dialogue and political conflict is uh, more of a model than um, new research they're drawing on other people's research so there's like multiple different studies and then they're comparing them and contrasting them to try to 
develop an overall framework to think about hope and how it compares with fear in this context of political conflict. Just kind of giving some more of that clarity because I, I've i noticed even as um, for the past year and a half, like past three semesters, I actually was a teaching assistant for a research methods class. And there was often a lot of confusion going in about, well, what's the difference between like a literature review and now I might be going off the rails a bit, but part of my goal in this podcast is to do like some sort of science communication. And there was often some confusion between understanding like, oh, the the authors of this article conducted this research versus they're just summarizing other people's research. Yeah, no, it's an important distinction to make. So yeah, the authors that you listed earlier, who's, what is it, Jerry... <laughs> cut that was, part out I don't know I was pronouncing it Jaramovic's but I looked it up and I think it's more like Jaramovic like Jaramovic okay Jaramovic I, th- I think that's like closer anyway and I apologize and welcome corrections from anyone who knows better than me about this <laughs> who's listening okay so Gary Mowic and Bartol are citing of actually a, a large amount of other um, researchers yeah. who so, made these findings. Yeah. So if you're really into academic research and um, conflict studies, this article is like a treasure trove. Like their reference list is a treasure trove of research about this topic. If you want to like take a deep dive into it, I would just, I'm looking at their reference list and I'm like, wow, I want to read so many of these things. There's so many things to read and learn about in the world though. For sure are. Yeah, no, this, their uh, reference list goes on for pages and pages. Yeah. Like they've got a whole entire page of single spaced citations for just the letter B. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And if you're not the type of person who wants to read all that, then you can just listen to this podcast where we summarize this stuff and try to talk about it in a way that's accessible for people with different availability and learning styles, learning styles and availability to interact with such information that's very dense. I'm just thinking about if there's any like final thoughts that we want to share. I guess the main, I do want to just mention, so the last episode was about fear. And then today we're talking about hope. And I think the main point that these authors are trying to convey is that these are like different types of emotions that function in totally different ways. Like fear is more automatic and um, doesn't require conscious thought. Whereas hope is, more complex and often does require conscious thought. Maybe there's types of hope that don't, I don't know. I was thinking more like about like religious faith or something. You might have hope that's not involving like envisioning a future. Like maybe you just trust that some higher power will work things out for the best. I don't know. But um, at least in the way they're defining it, having hope is, is a lot more complicated and and just slower like it takes longer for these different parts of our brains to communicate with each other to produce a hopeful feeling which is why it's like easier to feel afraid when we're talking about 
political conflict and trying to have political dialogue, which is one of the dilemmas that political dialogue has to reckon with, hence the podcast name and why we are talking about this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One of the takeaways, I am more curious about like going forward, how to engender hope in more people or give people a greater sense of hope. Um, Because if it has all these benefits, um, you know, shouldn't we uh, be encouraging that emotion? Yeah. Um, Yeah. These authors do have some suggestions, some evidence-based suggestions about that. And I'm planning to talk about that in a future episode. Oh, I will definitely tune in. <laughs> I I think it'll be the one after next, possibly, because I might first talk about, do a short episode about fear and hope on the larger scale, which Yarimovich and Bartal talk about, because so far we've kind of been talking about how it works for individuals, but then they also go into how this can spread on a wider scale of like a whole society kind of being more oriented towards fear or hope. And I'm thinking the next episode will be about that. And then uh, the last episode in this like mini batch will be about, well, what can we do with all this information to help ourselves? Yeah. And I mean, in, in my line of work, I can see how not even applying like the political sort of hope with dialogue, but like even just trying to engender hope in people to not give up on things. Yeah. Seems like a, a useful thing to have some evidence-based suggestions for. Yeah. And one thing I was kind of unsure about in breaking the episodes up like this is like leaving people with this information without some practical suggestions. But I, I do want to invite people to just sit with it. And I would personally suggest because having done things like this and not and not going well, not to run out and start lecturing people about how they need to be more hopeful. I don't know that that will be helpful. <laughs> yeah, so- I would say don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Or even yourself, like, let's not berate ourselves for not feeling more hopeful either. Because um, that's, I don't know that that's helpful either. And even like it was mentioned that the people who are more hopeful had less self-blame. Whereas people who were less hopeful had more self-blame. So I guess part of what I'm hoping to accomplish in sharing this information also is just to kind of drive home the physiology component and that this is a lot of how our brains have evolved to respond with fear more automatically because it can help you in a crisis sometimes. Like if you're in a house that's burning down and then there's some situations that it's not as helpful but it still can be hard to not react in that automatic way. And I hope, I hope <laughs> that thinking about this can help us be a little more compassionate with ourselves and others and, and why it can be hard to be hopeful sometimes. Not- yeah. I mean, sometimes I, I feel um, hope for the future and I wonder if I'm like deluding myself because it can like, I don't know, we're up against a huge amount of challenges. Yeah, And I'm like, why feel hope? Like I don't have any right to feel hopeful about it. And yet I do. And 
that does prompt me to like engage with people in conversations and to donate money to causes I think are good. Whereas times before when I have not felt very hopeful, I, I have felt like withdrawing. So it's a, it's an interesting balance. Yeah. I was thinking about that too, because I also have some, I have a lot of worry about the future and also hope that sometimes I also, I'm like, not sure about that. <laughs> like, it, it's hard for me to envision how we're actually going to get to a future that I would be happier living in or feel more secure living in. And yet I'm not willing to give up on it. Like, I know there's some people who are just like, we're gonna all going to die. Like, climate change is going to kill us all in like X number of years. And and for people who feel that way, it's like believing anything else. I've talked to some people who feel like believing anything else is like false hope, like telling a terminal cancer patient who has like metastasized cancer that like there's hope they could survive instead of just acknowledging the situation and enjoying the time you have left. And I guess if that's really like, you know, what feels true for people, I don't want to like shut that down. But I also, for me, feel like I don't know the future. I don't know that anyone can really predict the future. And I remember hearing someone say once, like, if you don't believe there's any possibility of a future outcome, then you're certainly not going to do any actions that would make it more likely to bring that outcome about. So, Right. And then for me also, it's not like it's black and white, like we survive climate change or we don't. Like there yeah. are degrees of yeah. like how bad things can be. And so we, we still are living on a planet with amazing resources and we still like maybe we can't solve it or stop it in its tracks, but we can mitigate and we can extend things or reduce things like it's not just one or the other and I mean maybe someone who thinks that you know we are gonna die in 10 years and that's it like would disagree with that but I just keep in mind like how complex a system earth is there's so much we don't know yeah that we really can't give up yet it's not fair to ourselves and it's obviously not fair to like the future generations who are gonna have to live with it yeah there's like two things I want to say about that and then I, I do think we should wrap up um but it just reminds me of something I was just talking with someone else about which is like uncertainty tolerance or ambiguity on or yeah uncertainty tolerance or ambiguity tolerance and how we all have like different levels of being able to tolerate things, being uncertain. And sometimes I think not having hope is a way to just have certainty, like just decide like, okay, this is not going to end well, whatever the situation is, whether it's climate change or something else. And you just give up because then for some people that brings a sense of relief and peace. And I think having hope just because at least according to how these authors that we're talking about are define it requires envisioning things that haven't happened yet, positive outcomes that haven't happened yet, requires more uncertainty tolerance, like acknowledging like, 
I don't know for sure that things will get better or that there'll be a positive outcome, but I'm willing to be open to the fact that they, or to the idea that they will. Yeah. I was just going to say, I think that's really true. Like people can accept basically anything, even if it's horrible, if, you know, they feel like there is no alternative. And sometimes I get stuck in like, oh, I could be doing more. I could be doing more. And then it feels really bad to not be doing more, not be doing as much as I could. And if I took a stance of like, well, it doesn't even matter. Like it would be a lot easier to accept Mm -hmm. not only my own limitations, but like the effect of my actions and, you know, how much they may or may not help. And that is like living in a place of uncertainty. Yeah. That's making me think that like, even though hope is generally considered a positive emotion, maybe there's also some negative aspects to it. Like it sort of won't leave you alone. Like if if you accept a negative outcome and you're like, there's nothing I can do to change this, then you can just sort of let it go. But if you're like, I think that there is something I can do to help solve this problem, then you feel, even if it's, whether it's in your community, you know, politics or just in your personal life, then you feel like this push to like do something about it. And I often like struggle with feeling like I could be doing more living up to my potential more. And people are like, Oh, like you're too hard on yourself. You're already, you do so much, like you're great. And I'm like, that's actually not what I want to hear. I don't want to just accept. I'd rather be a little tortured and pushed to like go further with my life and do more that I feel like live up to my potential. Even if I'm like (laughs) a little bit of a tortured soul, then just be like complacent. <laughs> right. Then just be like, okay, well, I guess I'll watch like, you know, the 20th season of Grey's Anatomy <laughs> for the fifth time. <laughs> Not that I don't get all up in the Netflix right. pillow too. Not that I don't I have my, <laughs> my guilty pleasures for sure. And I mean, I, you know, totally support like Grey's Anatomy as a coping mechanism <laughs> or whatever. But yeah, yeah. sometimes um, like that little push, it's uncomfortable to have that feeling eating away at you, but it's, it feels good when you do it like mm-hmm. worthwhile. It feels worthwhile. It feels meaningful. It feels um, like there's a certain satisfaction there. Yeah. Well, I feel like there's so much more we could talk about related to this, but I want to go ahead and wrap up to try to keep this episode within the amount of time someone might listen to during a short, medium, short commute or workout or something. And just invite anyone listening to share your thoughts and feelings. Like, do you have hope about political issues in your personal life? Or do you feel like you don't have a lot of hope? Do you think hope is a good thing? And What has your experience been with it? Have you had fluctuations in how hopeful you are? And what seems to have caused that? Any thoughts you want to share? You can email me at dialoguedilemmas at gmail.com or you can interact with my Facebook page, Dialogue Dilemmas, or Twitter. The handle is at Dialogue Dilemma. No S due to the character limit. And I am a grad student, as I've mentioned in other episodes I'm currently doing season one of this podcast for my master's project and would really love some feedback, you know, through one of those channels because I will be 
using it for my master's research and there's full informed consent notice attached to my social media sites, just informing that any responses or reactions are used totally anonymously. So if you want to reach out, please do. And if you want to just talk to me and don't want what you say being used for research, you can email me and let me know that as well. And I'm still interested in having a conversation. Thanks for being here today, Paige. I really appreciate having you on the show. Glad to join you. (laughs) I mean, I'd love for you to maybe be a guest again sometime in the future. That'd be fun. I'd be down. It's good to talk about this stuff with you. It's just an excuse to, you know, get my friends to like read academic research and like dork out on it with me about (laughs) sociopolitical issues. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening. Thank you.